everyone. This is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Jason Rogers from Noldis and Dr. Devette Valmerans from Northwest University in South Africa. They both recently joined us for a webinar on tracking, quantifying, and analyzing behaviors in rodent models. Let's dive in. The first question that we have here is for you, Jason. Someone has asked, did you see a difference with a round or a squared EOF? Yeah, so we didn't actually use a square elevated open field. We just used a, a round one. And so that's a that's a good question. And I think that a follow-up would be to to look at Conduct Sciences 3D or their their elevated open field and see if if there are any differences between the two. Okay, fantastic. Just to, as a follow-up on that, what differences would you actually expect from that? I'm not quite sure. I mean, the thing is, you, typically with walls and thing with Texas, the animals like to hide in the corners. But with without walls, I'm not sure what what that would do. That could be kind of interesting. We have a long-standing debate that I have with many of my colleagues on the other side of the pond when looking at zebrafish behavior and, and looking at larvae of square versus round wells. And I'm always a bigger fan fan of round because it encourages just natural movement instead of having corners and having to deal with corners. Mm. But I think it's a, an interesting question that would be something worth following up on. Okay, awesome. The next question here is for you, Devet. Someone has asked if the populations of the deer mice that you use in your experiments were wild caught or if they were bred in the lab. So the stock, the only stock center of the whole of Pyramiscus genus is actually at the University of South Carolina. So it is a wild type model, but it's actually been bred from stock at USC. So that's the whole right in the beginning. A few years ago, they actually caught a few animals from the wild and started their own breeding stock from that. But they have a very robust breeding program. So these are all lab-bred animals. Okay, fantastic. Thanks for clarifying that. This next question here is for you, Jason. This mm -hmm. question is, would the software be able to detect or recognize episodes of seizure in the field, for example, in epilepsy animal models? Yeah, I did a quick search on uh, Google Scholar to see if anyone has published with that. Most seizure models, they don't use EthaVision for, for detection of seizure. Theoretically, yes, it should be possible and doable. And actually, if you have an EEG system or some telemetry, you can integrate that with EthaVision as well and be able to pull in that physiological data in with the tracking data. But it would be something worth looking at also within the activity measure, within looking at pixel changes to see if we could quantify that. Again, it's something that I've never seen, but it's something that theoretically should be possible. And if you have some videos and if you'd be willing to share, I'd love to try it. I'd love to test it. Perfect. I've got a question here for you, Devette. Someone has asked if there is a difference in the stereotypical behavior and or in the social behavior between genders and in animals of different ages? So actually, um, the sex question, no. So there's no difference. It's male and females. 
In terms of age, most of these stereotypes develop or become full-blown by the age of uh, 9 to 2 and 11 weeks. Although the lab of Mark Lewis and Presti in the States at Florida, at Gainesville, did quite a, a number of neurodevelopmental studies, and they do express these behaviors earlier, but there's no sex bias. What we did find, I'm so glad for this question because the data is in preparation, but we did find a sex-based difference in the way in which the immune systems of stereotypical animals actually respond, where we saw that males were quite distinct in their presentation when you quantify a simple thing like a neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio. So there are differences in sex, not necessarily on the behavioral side of it, but definitely as to how sex interacts with other factors in the body that may deliver this behavior. And that simply supports our recent notion that female and male psychiatry is actually very different things nowadays, but we are busy with it. So thank you for the wonderful question. Fantastic. Okay, we've got another question here. It's also for you, Devet. First, this person said they really enjoyed your talk. And then they asked, could you comment on the value of the marble burying assay? When I have inbred mice showing me high levels of burying, what are they telling me? Okay, there's a few things. First of all, we did a very big review. I will send Sarah the link, then you can get it. So the marble burying test, the first question we ask ourselves is, how do we do it? If we do it in on a very light substrate with a, with a relatively large particle size, we need to ask ourselves, okay, what does the behavior look like? So is it marble directed? So is it aimed at the marble or are my mites just physically active? Because if they are, they will burrow and they will run around in these cages and the marbles will settle to the bottom. The third question we need to ask is how do we quantify it? Because 85% of all papers out there quantified on a two-third buried principle. So if your marble is buried two-thirds of its size beneath the substrate, then we regard it as a buried marble. In that sense, I'm asking from my experience, how can you delineate a two-third size of a marble if you have a burning substrate with an average flake size of half the marble, then it can actually become a question of what does an increased burying count tell me? Less so than what does marble burying tell me? And the short answer is in if you do it like that, in 90% of cases, it's increased motor activity. So that would probably be my major conclusion. It would be very fantastic and informative to repeat that test if it hasn't been done in a coarser substrate and a heavier substrate to see if you get the same results. Because then you can use software to compare the distance moved in the arena because they can't burrow with the number of marbles that actually so below the surface, then you have an accurate data. And that brings me by my last conclusion. So let's say it is increased burying behavior. The only conclusion that can come from it is an increased interest in an object that's not reactive for some or other reason. They propose the marble burying test as a test of anxiety. I've never seen an animal become anxious due to marbles. 
I've seen an animal showing interest in marbles, and that's something different. But then we need to be very clear as to the question we ask. So I would say to the to the a delegate that it would depend on the nature of your test and then on the nature of your genetic manipulation. Do you expect it to see something in the motor behavior? Then a marble burning test on a light substrate will be fantastic. Or do you expect it to focus attention on something like we seek for incompulsivity? But then you have to use a more denser substrate in order to come to that conclusion. I don't know whether I answered it, Sarah, but that's basically how I see it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.